Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. We will get around to answering a question for adults, but I feel like um, that question for kids was great, and thank you, Ed, for answering it. And, uh, you know, we, we might just close in prayer, but I don't know. I think the Lord has some stuff for, for us from 1 Peter 1 as well. So turn there, 1 Peter 1, chapter 13. You read in your copy of God's Word as I read it out loud. It says this, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. Those are God's words. When I was in the eighth grade, one of the highlights of our academic year was that we took a trip during spring break to Washington, D.C. So for the entire year in our social studies class, we studied the United States Constitution. And then right before the the trip, we had this big test on the Constitution. And it not only made up like most of our grade for the entire semester, but it came with a special reward. The girl and the boy who got the highest score in all of the eighth grade on the test had the privilege when we visited Arlington National Cemetery of laying a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier. This really cool thing. There was kind of two kinds of students in our eighth grade class. The first kind of student wanted to just, they knew they didn't have any chance of getting the highest score. So they just wanted to pass the test. They didn't, they didn't even try and get the highest score. They wanted to pass the test, pass the class, go on the trip, and just have a good time. And I'm fine with that. The second kind of student was the student who thought, I could do this. And so they studied feverishly in hopes that they would be the one to represent the eighth grade in laying the wreath. I was the second kind of student. So the day of the test came around, and one of the things that we had to do in that test was we had to write out from memory the preamble to the Constitution. You guys know the preamble to the Constitution? We the people, in order to form a more 
perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, and on and on it goes. And so I was writing it out, and then as you do, I went back after the test, and I went to check my work. Did I get it exactly right? And I realized in that moment that I had missed a word. And I knew because of the way this test was that only a person who had done perfectly, only a person who had gotten 100% could earn the prize. So in that moment, I had become just another student that would hope to simply pass the test, pass the class, and go on the trip. I, I didn't have anything to look forward to in terms of a reward. And I think that there are times when you and I think about our salvation in the exact same terms that people in my class thought about that test. We know that God's standards are incredibly high. We try our best to meet them and to earn his favor. And then we're devastated when we inevitably fail. And we just hope that somehow that our best is going to allow us to slip in under the wire Then there are others who know how high God's standards are, and they don't even try. They think to themselves, I just want to make it to heaven, even if it's by the skin of my teeth. And when we come to a passage like we read in the Bible this morning, and the the statement is, be holy as I am holy, we think to ourselves, is God just some sort of impossible taskmaster? Because we open our Bibles and we read things in Scripture like this. Do not be anxious about anything. And then we find ourselves in life riddled with crushing anxiety. Or you're reminded the fact that we're supposed to forgive other people because Christ forgave us. And you think to yourself, is the Bible really asking me to forgive my spouse that was unfaithful to me? Is that really what I'm asked to do? Or you know it's a sin to be jealous, like we talked about in the kids' AMA. The Bible says so. But what about all those people whose lives are better than mine, who've had it easier than I have, who haven't faced the challenges, one challenge after another that I have? How can I not be jealous of them? And there's any number of commands in Scripture that seem really, really difficult to follow, or maybe even impossible to follow, and they seem like they only exist to show us our inability to attain to holiness. And so we think, is obedience to God some sort of obstacle course that beats us and batters us along the way so that only people who survive to the end can somehow prove their worth? We took a number of the questions that we got and we sort of synthesized them into this question this morning that I want us to address out of the book of 1 Peter. Should should I feel bad when I read my Bible? I don't know if you've ever felt bad when you read your Bible, but I think that a lot of people do. They open their Bible and all of a sudden they find it kind of throwing back in their face the way they've acted and behaved. And I think one of the reasons that we might feel bad when we read our Bibles is because we misunderstand this idea of holiness. And so I I think that when we read our Bibles properly, that the call to holiness comes from our anticipation, not from our effort. And that clarity of hope for the future comes before 
the call to holiness. That's what Peter says. Look at it here. And Peter helps us to understand this morning how we misunderstand this call to holiness in three ways. The first of which we find in verse 13. He says, I think, and I'm going to summarize it this way, that we've forgotten our hope. And just as you're on that first page of the letter, go all the way back to the first verse of this letter, the beginning of the letter. Peter says that his audience is God's chosen people who are living as foreigners or exiles. Now, God's people are exiles because we read, read about it in the book of Acts. Persecution has scattered them across the region, but they're also exiles because they're called to live obediently to God in a world um, that's hostile to God in its lifestyle and its, in, in its priorities. Peter's purpose in writing to these people, we can look at it in verse 3, um, uh, is to help them understand what he calls their living hope. That's what he says in verse 3. And then in the next several verses, he unpacks that eternal hope and he, he, he says that their hope is their true and eternal home. Then he comes to the point for these exiles in verse 13 where we start this morning. Look at it. He, he instructs them, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when we're looking at a passage, what we need to do is we need to find the command. And that, that helps us kind of to structure and understand how the passage is put together. And this is the command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He instructs the people who are living as exiles because of their faith to think about what is coming in the future, what will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Instead of focusing on the temporal, the things that are happening here and now, Peter instructs these believers to refocus their minds on the eternal. One commentator said it this way, and I, he just said it so precisely and so succinctly, and I love this. This is Warren Wearsby, if you're familiar with him. He says, Christians live in the future tense. Isn't that good? Christians live in the future tense. Now, just like Peter's audience, you and I are living in a land that can be hostile to anyone trying to live a faithful Christian life. We are exiles. We are foreigners. And we need to embrace that reality. We need to, 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 to live in light of that. We are foreigners in a strange land if we understand our eternal home. And the key to living faithfully as exiles is found in this command that Peter gave. We're to set our hope on eternity. Now you've heard that before, but how, how do we actually accomplish that? Well, if you look at the first part of verse 13, he tells us how to do that. He says, we are to look at it, Verse 13, very first part, we are to prepare our minds for action and we are to be sober-minded. I think too often in an effort to live that successful Christian life, we fast-forward our focus onto our behavior. Eventually, this passage is going to instruct us to imitate God's holiness. We know that, we remember that, we've read that. But when we think that our faith is equivalent to our behavior, we, we're just poised for discouragement and defeat. First, Peter tells us, we have to set our minds right. 
there in verse 13. He tells the people, or he tells us, if you will, that our faith is going to be tested. Look at what it says. He says, be ready for action. If we're not mentally prepared, we are going to fail. He tells us to exercise self-control. That's what he means when he says, be sober-minded. Understanding our eternal hope and our eternal home is the first step in submitting to and acting in the Spirit. Think of times where in your life where you've really, really wanted to live for the Lord. You're motivated. When, when that's true of you, do you primarily think of that as changing your behavior through your own effort? Peter wants us to stop that. He wants to set our minds right first. He wants us to understand our future, and as we do, what he teaches us is that only then are we going to be prepared to grow in holiness. Uh, think about it this way. You're getting ready to leave for that long-anticipated vacation, right? Maybe it's after 18 months of a global pandemic. I don't know if you can ever imagine that, but you're getting ready to leave your house for the first time or go on vacation, and you are so looking forward to your time away. It's going to be good to relax. You deserve it. You've worked hard. Um, but just before you leave, what happens? If you're like me, before you go on vacation, there's all the stuff to do to get ready for vacation. you got to take care of all those last-minute things that you've been putting off, right? And again, I don't know about you, but for me, some of the most productive times in my life are those days and hours before I'm about to leave on vacation. If I could be as productive all the time as I am in those times, I might have like more vacation. I don't know. But I know what my future holds. I'm anticipating that. And with that perspective in my mind, I'm accomplishing the tasks at hand when we aren't focused on our hope and our home and the future. We lack that perspective. We lack, lack that focus to accomplish what God has given us to do here on earth. Well, part of the problem is that I think oftentimes, um, if I can speak for myself, and I think I'm speaking for you as well, we think of this world, this moment, as our home, as our true reality. So that living with character and holiness that reflects that eternal home seems somehow less important in this moment. When we forget our hope, when we forget our home, it's a sign that we have forgotten another thing that causes us to misunderstand holiness. And this is where Peter's going to go next. He says that we've forgotten our identity, starting in verse 14. Look at it. Peter calls the people children there. And I think that parent-child relationship provides the identity that is the key to our holiness. Ed talked about that a little bit. Uh, he returns to this relationship again. Look at it in verse 17. He identifies God as Father. Notice, though, keep... Keep your finger there in verse 14, that we're not just children. We are, what does it say? Look at it. We're obedient children. And that, that seems to be unrelated to our performance. It seems to be unrelated to our behavior. To me, this is one of the great mysteries of salvation, that when we are in Christ, God sees us with Jesus' righteousness not according to our own performance. 
because our identity is, is as a children of the Father, we're, we're compelled to exhibit the family characteristics. And I think if you were to talk to many adopted families, maybe most, maybe all adopted families, you're going to find this is true. Over time, children who have been brought into a family through adoption start to exhibit the patterns and the characteristics of their adoptive family. Now, now transfer that over to our spiritual life. In salvation, we're not just adopted into the family of God, but we're also given new life. We have a new heart and we have a new spirit. The spirit of God is in us. And what's that family DNA that we're to start to exhibit? It's holiness. He says it there, here in this passage. He says, be holy as I am holy, verse 16. And, and here we know that Peter is quoting from the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus chapter 11. And in Leviticus, if we remember back to the Old Testament, the law is given to show the Israelites the standard of holiness that has to be achieved in order to enter to God's presence. The law gives the people the legal means to achieve the standard of holiness to stand before God. But it becomes immediately obvious to the people and us as we look back at it that the law had shortcomings as a means to make us holy, as a means to make us eligible to approach a holy God. So now Peter comes back to this standard of holiness, only now he gives us a new pathway to achieve that standing. <clears throat> Excuse me. A new pathway through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, under the law, God's people tried to maintain and achieve holiness on their own by adhering to every point of the law. And in doing so, they found hopelessness and futility as they tried to measure up to God's standard. But in Christ, it is by grace. He talks about the grace in verse 13. It is by grace that we are able to take hold of the holiness of Jesus instead of meeting that standard on our own. God's standard hasn't changed since the Old Testament times, but his provision has changed. Instead of that temporary provision of animal sacrifice under the law, we now have the eternal provision of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as the Lamb of God. Peter points to that in verse 19. You and I can confidently say on this side of the cross that we are obedient children. We are obedient children. Not because of my effort and achievement, but because I have been adopted in to the family of God. I am a son or I am a daughter of God. We've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that God sees us as his obedient children. And you and I are called to live out that identity in confidence. When you think about yourself, do you think about yourself as a person trying to do your best to please God? I think when you do that, you're living what Peter calls in verse 14, in your former ignorance. You're living without the light of the gospel. Instead, yes, we are sinners. We think of ourselves that way, but we are sinners saved by grace, covered in the blood of Christ, and empowered by the Spirit to live a life of holiness pleasing to God. 
And, and yeah, there's still going to be a battle. It's going to take effort. Even though we're adopted and transformed, we haven't yet realized that full freedom from sin yet. But even that points us back to that hope that we can focus on in eternity. A life free from sin. A mind that does not wander. A body that is whole and free. So think about what is the sin that you regularly struggle to find victory over. Maybe it's a sin like coveting. You're envious of your neighbor. We talked about that in the, in the kids' AMA. You recognize it in yourself. You struggle to overcome it. But in that day-to-day life, you look at your coworkers, you look at your neighbors, you see the car they drive, you see the house they live in, you see the clothes they wear, you see the restaurants they frequent. You spend time on Instagram looking at them and you wish that their life was your life. And in your best moments, you say to yourself, happiness is not found in the possessions and the experiences of this world. But then you found yourself with your phone in your hand, scrolling once again, wishing you could exchange lives with them. You try hard, but you can't shake it. Instead of relying on your own ability to overcome, you and I, in that instance, have to rely on the Spirit of God to bring contentment into our lives with a focus on the eternal rewards that God has laid up for us. And we can apply that to any other sin as well, right? That same Spirit-empowered change of perspective, whether you struggle with lust or with anger or with greed or whatever you're struggling with. I'm sure that my family is not unique in this. I'm sure this happened in your family as well. As we were raising our children, we um, found that at times we had to have with them the talk. Not that talk, a different talk. (laughs) There were moments where our kids were wondering, why can't we do the things that other families do? Why can't we have the things that other families have? Or why do we do certain things that other families don't have to do? Right? You remember that talk? And we would simply tell them, as you probably did in your family, that's just not what our family does, or that is what our family does do, or that's not what our family does do. And whether it was a tradition or a behavior or a priority or a prohibition, we wanted them to understand that our family was unique. And that's okay. And every family is unique. And that's okay. And we could take pride and confidence in our family identity. And we understand that that family identity, for good or for bad, will shape our kids into the future. They're going to act like a hern because that is ingrained into who they are. Same with you and I being part of the family of God. The more we understand our identity as obedient children of a holy God, the more we naturally will enter into that holy behavior. It will come more naturally to us. But we could feel bad when we read our Bible because we read it as a condemnation of our effort to live up to God's holy standard. But we need to understand that we are loved and accepted, no matter what our performance is, because when God sees us, he sees us as beloved sons and daughters, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now that is not to say that holiness does not matter. We are still called to holiness, 
But this leads to the last way that we can understand holiness. I think, look at the passage. We've forgotten the cost of salvation. There in verse 17, Peter turns our attention from the children to the father, who he says, and this may be surprising to us, is going to judge people according to each one's deeds. Now, he's not speaking about judgment in an eternal destiny sense, but he's, he's speaking about judgment based on deeds resulting in rewards. This future event provides us with the motivation to live, he says, with fear throughout the time of our exile. With fear? Other translations say it this way. I really like it. I think they capture the idea. It says that we are to live with reverent fear. See, a believer's life on earth results in an eternal investment, either for the good or for the bad. And rather than being rather than being frustrated at not being able to maintain some adequate level of holiness through our own effort, we are reverently fearful of the one who will judge our deeds and give our eternal rewards. So then we might come back to our question for this morning. Should I feel bad when I read my Bible? I think we've already answered that no, right? We shouldn't feel bad when we read our Bible, but here Peter wants us to consider that the Holy Spirit may use the conviction of Scripture to redirect our hearts and our minds and our behavior to consider eternal rewards available from a loving Heavenly Father. The Spirit may use the weight of that conviction to redirect our action towards holiness. Now, if we continue on in verses 18 through 21, Peter further reminds the people that they were purchased, ransomed, he says, at a great cost. And it's the blood of Jesus that has purchased our redemption in verse 19. Far greater than any tangible item of value that we might imagine, it is the priceless, the precious blood of the Father's own Son used to purchase our salvation. Now, Peter is once again adjusting people's perspective. How valuable is salvation? It's far more valuable than anything here on earth. That's for certain, he says. It's only when we adopt that heavenly perspective that we begin to appreciate the cost of our redemption. Jesus, look at verse 19. Jesus pays for our debt as the lamb without blemish or spot. He's the only human being ever who was, who was able to fulfill the law demands. Jesus hears that command from the book of Leviticus, be holy as I am holy, and he perfectly meets the standard in our place when we could not. And Peter wants you and I and all the exiles to rest confidently in the fact that God, verse 20, has planned all of this before the foundation of the world. So Peter ends where he began. Peter returns us in verse 21 to that hope. Secured by God in eternity past and available to us in eternity future. And that's where you and I are to set our minds focus. Seems to me that in, in our day and age, in this world, the label of Christian has been cheapened. What does it mean when someone says they're a Christian? You can hardly tell anymore. I've heard some people use that 
label Christian, that idea of Christian to distinguish themselves from being Christian. Are you Christian or are you Catholic? Are you Catholic or are you Christian? I'm Christian. I've heard other people um, say they're Christian because they grew up in a Christian home or they went to church when they were young or maybe you've heard something like this. Are you a Christian? Well, I believe in God. Increasingly, I think unfortunately, sometimes in our world, especially in America, being a Christian gets associated with a certain political point of view. Too many of us sitting here in the church at times, I fear, have identified as Christian because we've walked the aisle or we've said a prayer at an evangelistic rally or a summer camp or a vacation Bible school or a church service. Some people hold on to the promise of heaven but live however they want because they have never genuinely, truly understood their salvation. They certainly have never appreciated the cost of their salvation. And they might open their Bible every once in a blue moon, read a couple of verses, and when they do, they feel bad about themselves. They might come to hear the preacher and he says something about sin and they feel bad about themselves. It's because even though they call themselves Christian, it has no real bearing on their true spiritual state and their eternal destiny. When my mom died a couple of years ago, we, we set about the process of going through all of her stuff, and she had a lot of stuff. And there were certain things we just put in a box and we marked it for the estate sale or marked it for the dump or whatever. And then there were other things that we carefully set aside. We protected them so they didn't break or get lost. What made the difference? the value of the item. Whether it was sentimental, whether it was monetary, the things that were precious to us, we treated differently. Same way with our salvation. How we live our lives is an expression of the value that we place on our salvation and its cost to our Savior. So if we return to the question of the day, should I feel bad when I read my Bible? If you feel bad because through your own effort and ability you have fallen short of God's holy standard and you can't possibly imagine how God could love you, then no, you should not feel bad. You need to remember your hope. You need to remember your identity. You are a beloved child of God who has a future secure in eternity with your Savior. The Bible is not a hateful, judgmental book smacking our hand on a ruler every time we turn the page. That's not what the Bible is. And when we read the Bible properly, the call to holiness comes from that anticipation, not from our own effort. The clarity of our hope should always come before a call and a move towards holiness. Maybe, though, you feel bad because you understand that your sin is an affront to a holy God. And if that's the case, then what you're feeling is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you should do one of two things. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never bowed your knee. You've never really, truly understood the gospel. You've never, uh, you've never considered the cost that Jesus paid on the cross 
for your sins. And if you do that this morning and you place your faith in Jesus, if you confess Him as your Lord, you can have forgiveness that weight lifted off of you and you can have new life where you can follow Him in holiness into the future. You are a child of God at that moment with an eternal destiny with Him. Maybe you've already placed your faith in Christ, but you feel bad because you recognize that your behavior is not consistent with the family identity. And if that's true, then you only need ask for forgiveness. You can restore that relationship with God immediately. You can experience His favor and you could begin that process of eternal investment. And I would challenge you to that this morning. Should we feel bad because we open our Bible and read it? No, the Bible is an opportunity for us to meet the God, the creator of the universe, and to have relationship with Him, and to have intimacy with Him, and to know Him. And that leads to... um, uh, family identity that leads to a future and a hope, and we praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is the guiding light for us as we gather to worship you each weekend. It is the thing that helps us to know you. It is the thing that unlocks who we are. And Father, we, we are grateful for that. And so, God, we, we commit ourselves to renewing our mind with the words that you've given us that reveal you, that reveal your character, that reveal your plan for our life. Father, there may be those here this morning that have no knowledge of you or that recognize that maybe what they thought was relationship with you was really performance-based or what they thought was relationship with you was only... Uh, 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 tradition passed down from generations before. Father, I pray that as as your people gather this morning, that those who do not know you will bow the knee to know you and start that relationship with you. Father, could we pursue with you holiness and identity and hope and God may enliven our lives as we exit this place of worship and enter into the world that is a mission place for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.